anointings. Amen. Those are great songs. I know if uh, you can relate, but it's so nice to start just with focusing on Jesus Christ. It gives a chance to uh, set aside maybe things going this week or this weekend and just focus on Christ. My name is Derek. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we will be looking at Colossians. Now, as I was preparing this, a very apt illustration came to mind. When I was, I think I was 20 years old, I worked for Enterprise. So if you've ever rented a car, you know the person that you go, you rent the car and uh, they walk you out and then they try and scare you into buying the insurance. That was what I had to do. And so um, now luckily I was just an intern, so I didn't get, you know, my pay based on, but they did, they had to sell these. So I'd have to do all these sales. But also if you remember way back when, I don't know if it's still that way, Enterprise, pick enterprise, we'll pick you up. And so I got to go pick people up and bring them in and bring them back. And one day I picked up an older man who was probably about my age now, oddly enough, but I picked him up and I was driving him about 10, 15 minutes somewhere. And I got talking about Jesus and he started talking back about Jesus. And so it was like, Hey, yay, you know, we get to talk about Jesus. But quickly I realized he was talking about somebody I wasn't talking. It, you know, we had a different view of Jesus. And so I started prying a little bit and, and I was talking about Jesus and, and his divinity and how he's trustworthy. And, and he's like, yeah, Jesus is a God. I'm like, no. <laughs> you know, Jesus is, I said, John 1, 1. I quoted John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And he's like, you know, actually that says in the beginning, beginning uh, was the word and he was a God. I'm like, what? what? <laughs> so he had a totally different interpretation of the Bible. And as, as we got talking, and, and of course, my whole thing was I wanted to convert him in the next 10 minutes before I dropped him off and let him know that he was wrong. And here's the true Jesus. And he needed the true Jesus to be saved. It didn't work. I failed. Luckily, that's not up to me. But what I could have used was today's passage. I didn't have today's passage in mind. If I would have, it would have been awesome. So Today's passage is one that you will be able to use. Today's passage is one that will be like a border. Because that's what I was thinking of as I was doing this. It, we have all this stuff going on in life. We have all these beliefs being thrown at us. We live in a culture right now that's, that's pluralistic. Um, it's not syncretistic, it's pluralistic. Meaning all these things can be different, but still true. Even if they contradict, who cares about that? They're all true. And so we have these things. If you're going to school, and if you're actually gonna share your faith in school, People are going to come at you. Uh, teachers are going to come at you. And so we live in a world where all these different beliefs are coming. Uh, the media is coming after us. Uh, we have decisions to make with our families, with our kids. All these things happening with life. What if, what if we had a border that we could kind of fit things in? And so when something comes our way, a decision, a belief, a doctrine, whatever it is, we can recognize that's in the border or outside the border. Uh, we have the holiday season coming up. And maybe some of you like to do puzzles. It's a great holiday tradition where you set up your table and you get a candle and you start a fire and you watch a football game, ideally. Um, but what do you do when you do a puzzle? <laughs> the first thing you do is the border. You look for all the flat pieces and you put the border in so that you know what fits inside. And every now and then while doing the nice landscape, you find a little Mickey puzzle and you're like, that doesn't go. You know, that's a different puzzle piece. Today, this passage we're going to look at is going to give us a border. Um, let me pray before we get into this. Lord Jesus Christ, holy, 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 we just need you to be with us. This passage here is going to outline who you are, and we need this. We need this bad. We need to not only know it, we need to live by it. 
We need to internalize this. We need to let this inform all that we are, all that we think, say, and do. And so, Holy Spirit, we need you to be present. So be here this morning. I pray that we, our worship here in our minds and in our hearts and in our voices would be a fragrant aroma to you, that you would be glorified. That these kids over here in the next room, that the worship they're doing would be glorifying to you because you're at the center of it all. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, please, to Colossians chapter 1. Two weeks ago, we began the book of Colossians, and we saw here that, that Colossae was a smaller town-ish, somewhat near Ephesus. We have a, a, a picture for you, but it was somewhat near Ephesus, and it was planted by a man named Epaphras. So if you see Colossae kind of to the right there, and Ephesus... And what probably happened was Epaphras went to Ephesus where he ran into Paul, who was teaching for a couple years. He ran into Paul. He heard the gospel. Then he went back and he planted a church. Oddly enough, just to give you some of the detail, he planted a church. It's in a guy's house named Philemon. Um, and there's a book, the next, or one of the books in the Bible. It's a letter written to Philemon. This letter right now being brought to Colossae is about 10 years after it was planted. Paul's in prison. Paul's never been to this church. And he's sending a letter to this church because he's heard about it. He's heard what's going on and he knows. And so he's sending it. They're going to probably read it in Philemon's house, by the way. Totally on the side note. But there's a slave that uh, escaped and it's Philemon's slave. And he went to Rome where he met Paul and he got saved. And he's one of the ones bringing the letter back. <laughs> and so he's going back to his master who he probably stole some stuff and ran away. Um, anyway, that's a different book of the Bible, but that's awesome. But all this kind of fits together. So you picture this house church. These people gathered together in this guy's house a wealthy man's house. We don't know how many of them there are, but they're reading this letter and he's warning them against false teachers because there's false teachers coming in. They're probably Gnostics uh, and the Gnostics belief was similar to some things now where only a few people receive special knowledge. And so these Gnostics were enlightened. And so they could look down on the rest of us because they had this special knowledge. And maybe someday you could get the special knowledge too. And you could join the varsity team and get off the JV team. But they were coming in. And so they kind of wanted to be in charge because they knew more than everybody else. And one of the things they were saying was Jesus is not enough. So they were taking other spiritual beliefs, other spirits, um, other doctrines, and they were trying to bring it together and mix it with Christianity. And in that, they were saying, Jesus is one among many, but you need these things too. And so these Christians are starting to be you know, pushed aside. They're, they're starting to be, get doubts and they're questioning, are we saved? You know, what's going on? And so Paul begins this book, and I think it's beautiful. We looked at this two weeks ago by encouraging them. He begins very clearly, calls them saints. He calls them brothers. He, he says that they have a secure hope in eternal salvation, that it's laid away for them in heaven, meaning it can't be lost, it's there. And so he's telling them, be secure, stand firmly on Jesus, and he's gonna get into a lot of the details later. But he wants them first to understand their identity as secure. And so we're gonna start in verse 13. Actually, we'll start in verse 12, because after he, he lays out their identity, he tells them how he prays for them. He prays for their holiness and their obedience and their strength, and he prays that they will be giving thanks. So in verse 12, he says this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. If you need a memory verse this week, let me give you those two right there. That he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What he's talking about here again still is our identity. He wants these people to understand that they are citizens of a new kingdom, a very real kingdom. But look at the process. Look at what happens. He says that God through Jesus has delivered. This picture is very much uh, of a battle where Jesus came and he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's, that's this picture. They knew kingdoms. We don't have a lot of kingdoms anymore, but in a kingdom, uh, in the, the Jews would have known this history, in a kingdom, a lot of times the Persians did it, the Babylonians did it. And once they conquered a territory, they would take whole populations and transfer them. They would move them to somewhere else. They did this with the Jews. So the Jews are very familiar with this, but they picked them up and they would move them and put them in a different culture. And what inevitably would happen was different religions would mix because there would be this people and mix it. And so that's the picture. But he's saying that now Jesus has done this. Jesus has delivered us from the kingdom we were in, which he calls what? The domain of darkness. Have you ever dwelt on that? Have you ever thought about that? The domain of darkness, which we were all in, and we still have a, a foot in, right? We're saved. We're citizens of the new kingdom, but we're still on this earth where sin dwells, this kingdom of darkness on earth where Satan has a lot of control. This morning, I just had even more reminder that this kingdom of darkness is very real. The, the Dream Center, maybe you know Alex and Kelsey, they go serve at the Dream Center, and some of you guys have too. She said they were at a, a place where there was a, a woman who totally stoned, and her husband's totally stoned, and he's beating her, and they've got this little four-month-old baby, and they're totally wasted. And she just said, it's just so dark. It's just dark, and so hopefully, they're going to be able to save that baby and remove it. But how horrible is that? Removing a child from their family, but it's safe. But this is, that's the domain of darkness. Do you remember the movie Demolition Man? Maybe I'm dating myself. Great movie. <laughs> Sylvester Stallone, Wesley Snipes. <laughs> and and, and uh, everybody, it's, it's run by Taco Bell, basically. But um, Taco Bell's the only restaurant. Anyway, uh, you, you need to go watch Demolition Man. But the, a lot of the population has gone underground. And so they live in the sewers. And Stallone is the cop up top and these people come out from the sewers and they steal stuff and then they go back down and he's trying to catch them. Well, he ends up going down and realizing they're right and all the people up there are wrong. But walking around underneath in the sewers and he goes and he gets a burger. You know, somebody in the sewers is, is flipping burgers and he gets one and he's eating it and they're like, you know what that is, right? It's like, no, rat. It's like, best rat burger I've ever had. <laughs> but th that's the domain of darkness. I picture it's this darkness, but you don't even know it. It's, it's everybody is out there eating dog food because they've never seen a sirloin steak. That's the domain of darkness. And, and if you're in the dark, you don't even know you're in the dark. But you're consumed with self. You're consumed with the world. These philosophies that lead you astray. The, the lust that's here, the dream. I mean, just look at Nevada. Look at the things that are legal here and, and, and the problems here. This domain of darkness. Jesus came and rescued us. That's what he's saying. He rescued us. We couldn't do it. So he grabs us and he takes us, maybe even ties us up and takes us to a new kingdom and places us there. And, and you saw the verse. That's why I read the verse before verse 12, where he talks about the saints of light, sharing the inheritance of the saints of light. And they are brought from the, the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's Jesus darkness to light. 
Now we're in this new kingdom in whom we have redemption. If you don't know that word redemption, it means purchased. It means, so at that time, if you had a lot of debt, they could take you and put you on the slave market to pay your debt. And they'll sell you and you'll have to serve for however many years, maybe forever, to pay off your debt. That's the picture of us on the slave market because of our sin, a debt we can't pay. We're on the slave market. And Jesus comes and goes, I'll pay for that. And sets us free and then puts us in a new kingdom. That is the beautiful picture that Paul wants us to understand our identity. You are now a son or daughter of the king in a new kingdom, a kingdom of light. Are we getting it yet? But see, this sets up the next section. That's why we're dwelling on this. Because what makes a kingdom great? What determines the state of a kingdom? The king, right? The king. I, uh, I've always liked medieval stories. I've always liked stories with King Arthur. And, and maybe you're familiar with the legends, King Arthur and Camelot. Uh, but they all basically revolve around the same way of Camelot is a wonderful place to live and it's different than anywhere else on earth. But why is Camelot so great? Because there's equality, there's justice, there's honor. And so the way he leads is not up, you know, telling everybody what to do like a typical dictatorship. He leads at this round table where he has other noble knights around that he gets their counsel from and then leads that way. I mean, it's a beautiful picture of how to lead. And he, he attains the throne, depending on the legend that you read. He attains the throne through valor and honor and courage. And he brings around him, this is, I always like this. He is such a great man that he brings the greatest men around him. You know, other honorable knights, they want to serve him and be with him. But what is the kingdom based on? Arthur. If Arthur's gone, now you've just got the knights that fight, whatever it is. It's all based on Arthur. The Jews knew this history. Remember David? The kingdom under David was pretty, pretty nice. It was pretty awesome. He made some mistakes, some big ones. But after David left, the kingdom rather quickly, you could say, fell apart. Two generations, and it was split. David was the great king, the best king that they've ever had. And so that's the picture that we're seeing now is we are transferred to a new kingdom, but it's all based on the king. So picture, picture this scene with me. I'm a, I'm a picture person. Close your eyes. <laughs> We've just been transferred into a new kingdom. We're in a town. Picture it old, cobblestone streets, um, no cars, no smog, evil, bad. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a Starbucks on every corner. <laughs> We're in this, this, and everything's free, <laughs> or it's 25 cents for a latte. So you're, you're in this new kingdom. We've just gotten there. In comes this entourage led by a white horse. And the man on the white horse has a white robe on, and he has a gold breastplate and a gold crown full of jewels, more jewels than you've ever seen. He has a large sword on his side, and he has a pretty face. He's honorable to look at. And with him is this whole entourage of people with him, all of them smiling, all of them pleasant. And you look and you go, who, who is that? And obviously looking at the crown, the answer is, well, that's the king. We're now in that kingdom. That's our king. And what's the question you're going to ask? What's he like? What's he like? And that's now what Paul's going to tell us. We're in a new kingdom, but what's the king like? Here's what he's like. Look at verse 15. I'm sorry, I skipped the notes. I'm getting too excited. If you're a note taker, every Christian is now a citizen of a new kingdom of light where they are sons and daughters of the king. The state and security of that kingdom is determined first and foremost by its king. 
but what is he like? Who is Jesus? This is the greatest question ever asked. This is the question that continues to be asked. Who is Jesus? And there's only one right answer. Who is Jesus? Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the exact image of God. The exact image of God. When I was on that ride with that man, I said, Jesus is God. He said, Jesus is a God. I was right because this verse says so. <laughs> he is the image, the exact image representation of the invisible God. God cannot be seen. He's spirit. That's what the Bible talks about. God is spirit. So we must worship him in spirit and in truth. But what would God look like if we could see him? Well, he would look exactly like Jesus. That's why we spent the first year and a half at Common Ground going through John, because the book of John told us all about Jesus. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. In John 1:18, it says this, no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus came to reveal the Father. He is the exact image of God. Philip, if you remember near the end, Jesus had been with his disciples almost three years. Philip, one of his disciples, says, Jesus, if you show us the Father, that'll be the, enough for us. If you show us the Father, that will be enough. And Jesus looks at Philip and he says, don't you recognize me? I've been with you so long. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What Philip was saying was, Jesus, I don't think you're enough. Because he said, show us the father, that will be enough. Jesus says, I'm not enough. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. What he's ultimately saying is, I'm equal with the father. I am enough. And that's what the book of Colossians is all about. If we're going to summarize it, it's all about Jesus is enough. Because the false teachers are saying, Jesus is good, but you need this too. Paul says, no, -uh, he's enough. But this is good. This might be true. No, only Jesus. He's enough. That's the point. Jesus is God. In Jesus, the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. Perfectly revealed. If you've ever heard about counterfeit bill detectors, the people that study, you know how they study? They don't study all the counterfeits. They spend most of their time looking at the authentic bills so that when they see a fake, they can recognize it because they know all the details of the original. It's the same with us. This struck me early on when I started reading other religions. I thought, man, I really need to spend most of my time studying Jesus because then when these other religions, other beliefs come my way, it's quick to recognize what's off. So there's the first part of the border there. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And what's it say here? Um, in verse 15, it says he's the firstborn of all creation. This is often taken out of context to say Jesus was born. That's not what it means in context. Firstborn of all creation, he's referring to the, the firstborn son in a culture, the heir. He is the heir of the king. He is the king. He is the le legitimate king with all authority. That's what this means, firstborn of all creation. From the beginning, he existed, and he has authority over it all. It doesn't mean he was created. It doesn't mean he was created, but that he, we're going to see he created everything. But Jesus is the legitimate king with complete authority. He's not a poser. <laughs> He's not, uh, who, who was it? Uh, king John, and it was Prince 
What was the prince? Remember the cartoon? Come on. With Robin Hood? There you go. King Richard, the Lionheart. And Prince John, that's right. He's no Prince John. He's King Richard. He's Aslan. He's the legitimate king with all authority. That's what that's talking about. And why? Why is that the case? Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus was not created, but is the creator of everything seen and unseen. If Jesus created everything, how could he be created? The Bible says he created all things. He existed forever. There was a point in time, yes, when he took on flesh, when he was born. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. There was a point that he took on flesh, but he existed forever. We can't contemplate that. Forever. He created everything, all things. And it says here, dominions and authorities, dominions, rulers. What he's talking about here is he's referring to the angelic realm, specifically probably to fallen angels here. Because the false teaching coming in was saying, Jesus is good, but you know, worship him for this. Basically what they had was they had a God of the sea. They had a, a, God, a God of fertility. You know what I mean? They, they would go to these different gods. And he says, one God, Jesus, he created everything, even those. So yes, there are spirits. You know, I, there's not a God of the sea, a God of fertility, but there are spirits and they are active and people can appeal to evil spirits and have things happen. That's very, very real. And that happened. And so he's saying, don't do that because Jesus created them. So why would you go to the created and appeal when you can go straight to the creator, the creator? That's who Jesus is. He is fully God. Again, that's part of the border. He is the creator. In him, look just down to verse 19. We're skipping a little bit. But it says, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is fully God. You see how that's such an important piece of the border? A lot of the cults, that's what they attack. This happened from the very beginning in the first centuries of the church. This was a big argument. Who is Jesus? Then it moved on to who is the Holy Spirit? But that was the big one. Jesus is God, fully God. And what's it say about creation? We like to skip this one. All things were created through him and what? For him, for him. Can we be honest with that for just a minute? Does that irritate anybody? In your flesh, does that irritate a little bit that you're not the center? If I'm honest, that bugs me. <laughs> yeah, when I'm in my flesh, when I'm thinking about me, I wanna be the center, right? Everything should revolve around me. I don't know if you guys ever do this with your families. You watch a movie um, or you go to the zoo and then you, you play the game. Who was what? You know, like you're in the zoo. Okay, who's what animal? Well, Lydia's the monkey. Um, <laughs> Elise is the parrot, whatever. You, you know, you, you figure it out or you watch a movie. Who, who is what character? Well, when I would read, you know, the Knights of the Round Table and all that, I wasn't Lancelot. I was always Arthur, right? Don't we always read ourselves into the hero? We do. It's natural. And, but here, Jesus is saying, it's about me. It's about, Paul is saying, it's about Jesus. Everything was created by him and for him. Here's another piece of that border. So if you, if you like pictures, draw this on your notepad. Draw a square with four borders. The first one, Jesus is God. 
It's got to fit in that. Jesus is God. And then the next one, write this. It's not about me. It's not about me. This will change your life. That one fact that it's about Jesus, not about me, will change everything. Everything. Because he deserves it. Because he's fully God. God is not like the genie from Aladdin. Remember that? He pops up, poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? Poof, what do you need? But we often think that, that God is like our genie and we go to him when we need something rather than we exist for him. So if it's best for him that I'm on the street and, and, and poor and messing in the mud, great, right? Wouldn't that be the joyful thing to do if that's what God wants me to do for him because I exist for him? Marriages, kids, parents, this changes everything. When I come in, or, or, or I've been there and the, the, the game's starting and Callie needs something done and I want to watch the Broncos play. You know, for me, what, what is my role as a husband? To be a, a loving head, to be the leader, but that really means that I serve. So my job is to love her. So if it's about me, I'm going to watch the game and get me another beer. Um, <laughs> but it's not about me. If it's about me, that, but if it's about her, then I can pause it because we got TiVo. And then I can go do whatever she needs. But, but that's an easy scenario. What about when your spouse isn't doing it right? What about when your spouse isn't perfect? And I know this is a rare occasion for most of us, but what about, what about when they're not perfect? And wives, you're called to be a submissive helper. We'll talk about that later in the book because he talks to, to couples. And, and husbands, you're supposed to be a loving head, which means you probably rarely get your way um, if you're doing it right. And that's okay. You do that joyfully. Then when your spouse isn't doing right, here's how we do things often. I hear this all the time in, in relationships, in work, whatever. They do this, so I do this. Because of how this person's acting, now I'm going to do this. Or because of this situation financially, now I'm going to do this. I don't have work, I'm going to do this. So we, we make these decisions based on circumstances or how others treat us and, or how we can manipulate them. What can I do to make them do what I want to do? That's manipulative. Rather, if it's about Jesus, what's going to please him? And so we look past that person or that situation and go, what would please Jesus? Because it's about him. That's what I'll do. And it doesn't matter how this person is going to respond. I'm going to do what he wants me to do because it's not about me. Financially, okay, I want to be a faithful, generous giver. We have this debt issue, okay, I want this nice car. Well, maybe I need to sell the car and get something you know, good enough, but, but save that money so that we can give to this missionary, where, whatever it is, because it, I'm not looking at me. I'm looking past the financial situation at Jesus because it's about him. What does he want to do? Changes your life. Now, just so you know, this has to be maintained daily if you're like me, <laughs> because very quickly, very quickly, the mirror comes up and, and I want to make it about me. But it's not about us. And that's a fact. That's the truth. That's not my opinion. It's not about me. It's not about me. That's humbling. That's humbling. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things, and in, the, in him all things hold together. Man, there is so much in these verses. He is before all things. He is preeminent. If your Bible is like mine, the, the title of this section is the preeminence of Christ. But that's what he means, before all things, both temporal in time before all things, but also in, in status. He is before all things. He's number one, numero uno, head honcho, 
Number one, he is preeminent. He is the point. And the other thing we see in these verses is he holds all things together. So not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer. If Jesus were to remove his hand from this creation for just a minute, we'd all go flying off the globe. We'd get too close to the sun and we'd fry up. Who knows what would happen? He sustains everything. You know, I know creation looks like, the, the planets look like they move with mathematical certainty, but guess who's making that happen? Jesus is. Just read Genesis 1 and see Jesus in all of that. In the beginning, God created. And, he, and then it goes through all that. Jesus did all that and he's still involved holding it all together. So here's the picture of the king. We're back now. We're, we're in that village and we see the king come through. We're in this new kingdom. Who is that? That's the king. What's he like? And the person next to us steps over and gives us the description we just read. That's what he's like. Now what's your question? Is he good? <laughs> is he good? Can I trust him? That's what he moves into next. What is our king like? What is Jesus like? Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Who is he? Verse 18, he's the head of the body. We talk about the church. The church is not a building. The church is not a place. The church is a people. The church is a people that have cho chosen to follow Jesus Christ as Lord. A, a people who have accepted that Jesus is the son of God, that he died on the cross and rose again. You believe that? You are then baptized into the church. If the building goes away, we're still the church. And we have a leader. We have a head. And it's Jesus. And the picture here is that he is part of the body. He's not outside pastors, elders, leaders, deacons, bishops. Whatever. They're not the head of the church. Jesus is the head, part of the body. How intimate is your head with your hand? Pretty intimate, right? You cut your head off. How well is your hand going to work? Not very well, <laughs> at least not for very long. Uh, one body. The point here is that Jesus is close to us. This is called the incarnation where God became a man. God became a man. He could only be the head of the body if he became human. If he became human. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. And how do we see that? That he's the head of the church, part of, part of that. He is personal and intimate, as well as being majestic and glorious. He actually knows your name, your middle name. He knows everything about you and loves you and cares and likes you. Wow. <laughs> wow. He knows, he knows all my darkness and he still loves me and cares about me. Just picture the king on the horse looking at you with that, that gaze. I know everything and he's still smiling. <laughs> that, that's this. And what did it take for him to get us into that kingdom? That's what he's talking about here. What he did to get us there. And it says that he is now the firstborn. He uses that again. He is now the firstborn from the dead. This is not talking about what it talked before he was the firstborn, meaning he is the rightful heir and king. Now he is the firstborn from the dead. You know, Jesus is the first human to be fully resurrected. Other humans were resuscitated, Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. Others died and were resuscitated, meaning their body had life again to die again later. 
But Jesus rose with a new body, never to die again. He was the first one. That's only a human trait. Only humans are resurrected. A God is not resurrected unless somehow it's combined in a way we don't fully understand. And he's fully God and fully man. But he had to be man. This is where, where cults and heretics throughout history, they come in. Either he's not God or he's not man. He just looked like it. And that's still drifting around in society too. That Jesus, you know, if we're going to accept his divinity, we have to reject his humanity. But we cannot because this means that he was human like you. This means that he was tired like you. You know, you know when you get hangry? Jesus has been there. Jesus, he can relate. You know, when, when somebody does you wrong and you're irritated because they did that, I'm going to do this. He's been there. He was rejected. He was despised by his best friends. He was abandoned. There was one disciple watching him on the cross, John. The rest were hiding like cowards. His friends abandoned. He knows. If you, whatever you're going through, he knows. He's been there. He's intimate. And because he's God, he can do something about it. There's so much. It's so beautiful. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is divine enough to pay the price and man enough to die. He had to be God because only an infinite being can pay an infinite debt. And our sin is an infinite debt. So Jesus had to be God to pay the debt. But Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So God had to bleed. So God had to become a man. That's how he redeemed us. That was the price to get us off the slave market. His blood that you see there in verse 20. Making peace at the very end by the blood of his cross. It's humbling. Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And what that earns for us is that we can be sons or daughters of the king in the new kingdom with a king we can trust because he did everything to get us there. Do you picture that? This kingdom exists now, but it won't be fully realized till later. We are part of this kingdom now. We have a king and we are now new creations. This is what we're gonna get into over the next few weeks about our new creations that now as we carry out life in this new kingdom, Jesus is in us. And so Jesus lives through us. It's just amazing. He does everything. What do we do? say thanks. I'm giving away future sermons, so come anyway. But, but you see here, Jesus is fully man, fully God. He did it all. See the borders that we have? Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. It's not about me. It's about him. And everything can now fit inside of that. We are right with him, it says in these verses, because of what he did. It says in verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Just read the commentators and, and they battle over what he's talking about here. But here's, here's the ultimate meaning. He, through his blood on the cross, reconciles all things. All things. So this world that's jacked up and in darkness, where mothers and fathers beat each other and get high and, and you know, let their kids wallow in filth, that happens, guess what? He's going to reconcile all things. That's going to be fixed. The earthquakes and the fires that take lives, that's going to be fixed. He's going to reconcile all things. And I don't fully understand how all of creation is reconciled through his blood on the cross, but it is. 
things on he- in heaven and on earth. In heaven, most would, would say that those are those who have died in Christ and are now in heaven, but they haven't gotten their new bodies yet, but that they will be reconciled in their new body, new heaven and new earth. He's talking about this new kingdom that's going to exist and it's gonna be perfect with the king and us with him. And so now we live with kind of one toe in the darkness out there. Why? Because he wants them in the light too. That's why we're still here. So more can come to the light. But what's our, what's our application? What is this for me? <laughs> what does this make me feel? Secure? Secure, humble? That this king would do all this for me? He is the God that created everything and sustains everything. And he gave his life all of this. This is who he is. Now I'm confident. So now you come at me and you tell me Jesus is not God. Well, Yes, he is. (laughs) And I'm secure. You're not going to get me off base. Like the Colossians that were coming in saying, Jesus isn't enough. Go to these things too. So no, Jesus is enough. He's fully God. Philip said, show us the father and that'll be enough. Jesus said, you've seen me. I'm enough. So here's the question for you. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Because factually, he is enough. He is enough. And we need to live on that and live in response to that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you, you are enough. (laughs) Man, that gives me such joy. That gives me such peace that you are enough. But I look at the world and I see such darkness. I see innocent people hurting. And I don't like it. (laughs) And you hate it even more than I do. And you've already put in, in process and plan to reconcile all things to yourself. And God, we can trust you. Jesus, we can trust you. I thank you that you're trustworthy. I thank you that you're enough. But I do ask, please intervene. With all the things going on in life, all the the hurt we cause each other, please intervene. The things happening down in Vegas, the, the things happening in California and around the world, intervene. Show yourself pull more people into the kingdom of light. And I, I pray that those of us that are in that kingdom, that we'd live like it. That we would live like we're, king, like we're sons or daughters of the king. That we would look different. That we would be agents of change. That we would be agents of light going in and making a difference in this dark, dark world. But it's all you in us. We love you. We love you. Let us worship now. Be glorified as we worship from the heart because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.